You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. And now, let's go to a book that's a lot about missions. Um, we're we're in going through the New Testament book that's called the Acts of the Apostles. It really is the history of how the Christian church started. And today we come to the third of three major turning points in this history. The first one was Pentecost, right? When when God poured out his Holy Spirit on on the Jewish disciples uh, of Jesus. And then second was what we looked at last week. The second major turning point was the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, uh, who would become Paul the Apostle, one of the the great missionary of the early church, uh, and also a writer of a good part of the New Testament. Uh, and now today, third, we come to this to the third major turning point, which is uh, sometimes called the Gentile Pentecost, uh, and this is the conversion of Cornelius, the centurion uh, from Italy, along with his family and friends and the pouring out of the Spirit on them. Uh, Parts of the account are uh, repeated multiple times in chapter 10, uh, and again in chapter 11. And like in the conversion of Saul, which is also repeated many times, um, it is, of course, that repetition a signal of importance. We're supposed to get this. We're supposed to understand uh, its significance. Uh, for the for the sake of time, we're, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. So let me set the stage uh, and uh, where we pick up. Cornelius is from Italy. He's a, a Roman centurion. Means he's in charge of a, a, a 100 men, uh, and we are told he is a deeply moral man, a charitable man, generous man. Praying man, a respecter of the Jewish people, uh, and a believer in the God of the Jews. That makes him an unusual centurion. And uh, an angel comes to him and uh, scares him and uh, says, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, your alms have been remembered. Now, go send, for, go send to Joppa for Peter. Uh, a man named Peter, uh, he's at Simon the Tanner's house. Go get him and bring him back. He's got a message for you. So uh, Cornelius sends off a delegation to Joppa to find Peter. Meanwhile, uh, Peter is in Joppa, Peter the Apostle, and he's getting a vision from the Lord. During a time of prayer, uh, he receives a vision from God, and it's this vision of what James was referring to uh, that, that gave him license to eat pork. Uh, the, the, this sheet coming down, held on all four corners, and this sheet is loaded with unclean animals, like pigs and, and, and other things. And the Lord commands Peter to kill and eat and of course, Peter, in characteristic fashion, says, refuses. Right? No, Lord. Um, 
You know, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a kosher Jew. Nothing unclean has passed these lips. Uh, but the Lord, in effect, rebukes him, repeats a message three times, and the message is this. It's at verse 15. God has made, what God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made clean, do not call common or profane or unclean. Peter doesn't understand the vision, uh, but the key to unlocking its meaning starts knocking at the door of the house where he is staying. It's the delegation from Cornelius, and uh, they are asking if Peter would come to back with them to Caesarea uh, to meet with Cornelius. Uh, and Peter agrees, uh, takes along six of his associates, and they make the two-day trip uh, from Joppa to Caesarea. This is what is now known as Caesarea Maritima. It's, it's the Caesarea on the coast that was built by Herod. Uh, if you've been to the Holy Land, you've probably been to Caesarea Maritima. Uh, that's where it is, two-day trip to jo- from Joppa. And they arrive at Cornelius' house. And that's where we pick up the story, okay? This is Acts chapter 10. Uh, starting at verse 25. It's a rather long reading. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, but if, if, uh, if you're not able or would rather sit, you may. Um, this is God's Word. Acts 10, starting at verse 25. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. 
To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray before we start. Prepare our hearts, Father, to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that together this morning we may hear your word and also going out live it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, in his poem in the, entitled Mending Wall... Uh, Robert Frost imagined two neighbors doing an annual chore, right? Walking the fence line between their two properties and, and mending the stone wall that marked the boundary. That chore had to be done annually because, uh, according to the poem, the forces of nature and hunters uh, conspired against the wall. Uh, and every year, uh, you know, breaches were made in the wall, and 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 it was and it fell down, and they had and they would have to rebuild rebuild it. Uh, one of the neighbors was committed to the chore. He he liked he liked it because, and he repeated this line that his father had taught him: "Good fences make good neighbors." You may have heard that expression, good fences make good neighbors. But the other neighbor wasn't so sure that was true. He's, he wondered whether you know, the fact that this wall keeps breaking down might be a sign that maybe the wall isn't such a, a good thing. Uh, after all, his, his repeated line becomes really what we now know as the most famous line of the poem, uh, something there is that doesn't love a wall. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. Well, in our world, in our sin-dominated world, there may be legitimate needs uh, for uh, actual walls. But the reality is that even today, even right now, God is actively engaged in remaking our world in such a way that walls will ultimately not exist. Actual or metaphorical, walls will be gone. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. And, and that something certainly includes uh, the Lord himself. In our deeply divided, walled off, siloed off world, God is bringing all kinds of people together through the Lord of all. The Lord of peace, Jesus Christ. 
that's what really is on display here, right? That God it bringing all kinds of people together through the work of the Lord of all people, Jesus Christ. That truth has massive implications for us as a church and for us individually as Christians, and it has massive implications for you if you're not a Christian. There are three principles here that uh, emerge from this event that I want to sort of unpack with you. The first principle is this. God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. Second principle uh, is that God brings people together by gutting the governing principle of religion. Now, that may sound surprising to you, but it's what God does. God brings people together by gutting the governing principle of religion. And then third and finally, uh, the last principle, God is radically inclusive and radically exclusive at the same time. Okay? So let's start with that first principle. God shows no partiality. That's not my language. That's Peter's language in verse 33. That's what he learned. That's what he learned from the vision. He got that vision of, the, of all that unclean food, those unclean animals coming down in the sheet. But when he walked into Cornelius' house, the, you know, the penny dropped. He, and he connected the dots and he realized that God wasn't talking so much about food as he was, as he was about human beings. That message uh, came home to him. What God has made clean, do not call common. Doesn't just rep- apply to food, it applies to people. And what this event shows is that God definitively breached the wall, uh, the racial wall, the religious wall, that, that had stood for centuries between Jews and Gentiles. Right, a wall that had, that had, you know, virtually sort of defined who you were as a Jew. It was had to have been part of their, you know, just their mental framework, how they perceived the world. There were Jews, and there was everybody else. Right, the nations, the the Gentiles who were uh, unclean, who were not to be associated with. Uh, who were uh, in the world but without hope in the world because they were not in covenant, in a covenant-based relationship with the one true God. But all that changes here uh, with the Gentile uh, Pentecost. With the salvation of Cornelius uh, and his family and friends, the pouring out of the Spirit on them, uh, and they're speaking in tongues, right? This the whole the whole world uh, view of of, of Peter uh, as a Jew w- would change. Uh, it, you know, it, he Peter saw the similarity, right, but between the Pentecost that he had experienced and what was happening before his eyes in Cornelius's home. Uh, he he no, did you notice that? That he said what, what, what convinced them that this was real was that they were extolling God, that is, 
that, that's a Greek word that means making much of God, uh, making God large. They were, they were praising God as the, as, the, as the best and highest reality there is. And they were speaking in tongues. Now remember what that miracle was. Uh, th- that is they, what they were doing was speaking in known languages of the world, languages they didn't know, but miraculously they were speaking these known languages so that other people could understand them who spoke those languages. And, the, and it was clearly signaling, right, that the, that the gospel is for the world. That, 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 that this message is for people of every tongue, every tribe, every nation. If you didn't understand that message from the first Pentecost, then you get it here at the Gentile Pentecost. Uh, Christianity is, is true for everybody of every race, in every culture, in every time. It's for everybody, every race, every culture, in every time. Now, Peter knew, Peter learned it, right? He, he gets it right here. He gets it right in chapter 11 when he goes back to Jerusalem and tells the church in Jerusalem what had just happened uh, with Cornelius. Uh, but he then gets it wrong uh, later in Antioch when he, he rebuilds that wall that, that God broke down here. And he refuses to associate with Gentile believers. And he's corrected, he's, 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 uh, he's confronted by and corrected by Paul the Apostle. Right? It, it was a learning process. This is a deep thing. And you could, you, you know, it, it was going to take time to sink in. You see the six, uh, the six men who went with, with, uh, with Peter. Uh, they're described there in verse 45. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Right? You can, you can, you can hear sort of the, the lingering racism. Really? Even on Gentiles? Ick. Well, the, the takeaway is obvious, um, you, that we as a church and you as a Christian must not build walls between races that God has already broken down. God has called people of all races clean, and therefore so should you. We should not regard them as unclean. And as important as that fundamental breakdown of that racial distinction is, uh, you know, God's been in the business of a long, a long time of breaking down barriers, not just racial ones. And, and you saw it really on display. Jesus broke down all kinds of barriers that... That, that human beings had constructed between themselves that kept them apart from each other and more importantly even kept them apart from the Lord, kept them apart from approaching God, kept them apart from God's salvation. And, and, and Jesus comes along and, the, and all these distinctions break down. I mean, it's, it was revolutionary, right? Um, so in terms of of, of God's love and God's salvation, socioeconomic distinctions. Whether you were rich or poor, 
makes no difference to the Lord. Right? Uh, gender distinctions, men or women, makes no difference to the Lord. Class or status distinctions, slave or free, makes no distinction, makes no difference to the Lord. Moral or immoral, Nicodemus, the moral Pharisee, or Zacchaeus, the immoral tax collector, makes no difference to the Lord. We saw it a couple of weeks ago when, when God instructed Philip, uh, a Christian, right? One of the one of the men, uh, early uh, the one of the men chosen to serve the widows, uh, directed Philip to go to the remote part of the g- desert in Gaza and literally run down a black African man, an Ethiopian uh, finance minister who also who was unclean because he was a foreigner, but who was doubly unclean because he was also a eunuch. We learned there that even the sexually altered aren't walled off from God's salvation. You know, and friends, this this revolutionary breakdown of barriers, which God does and which we must honor and continue, uh, is why Christianity is the dominant religion in the world today. I mean, you look at a map of of the dispersion of the world's religions, it is remarkable how geographically dominant and culturally dominant Christianity is. I mean, in the fact that it it has entered into so many different cultures and become the dominant faith. In fact, Christianity is dominant in every part of the planet except for a, few, a couple of relatively small places. Middle East, North Africa, and Asia Pacific, including India. You know, almost every, all the Hindus in the world, almost all of them are in India. Did you know that? It, it's, the, 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 the fact of the matter is that um, it's... Virtually every other religion, but even the major religions, by comparison, are geographically and culturally limited next to Christianity. Why? Because those religions didn't break down walls and barriers like Christianity did. Those, those religions still don't have a place for the many people in those cultures. What do the untouchables do in India? That lowest cat class, the delete. Christianity, uh, by by knocking all these barriers down, becomes um, uh, ha- has become uh, c- dominant across all cultures, and that's a good thing. But this, in spite of all this, right? We we still in our sin, we Christians in our sin. Uh, still show partiality in a way that puts us on a trajectory really away from God's heart. Um, And I think it's because we tend to get discipled by, allow ourselves to get discipled by the world as much as or more than by God and His Word, right? 
a lot of us get discipled by Fox News on the right. If you favor the left, you're, get, you're getting discipled by CNN, right? And, they're all, and all the other countless, uh, you know, media channels uh, on the inter- internet, right? Friends, you know, these are businesses that ge- generate ratings. How do they generate ratings? By building walls, right? By demonizing and name-calling and siloing off people that they don't agree with. And baby, that sells, and we've bought into it. Right? And so we, uh, we, we end up siloing off uh, and being sinfully partial uh, in ways that we, we shouldn't be, right? We make a distinction between vaxxers and anti-vaxxers, between mask wearers and mask defiers, right? Between uh, c- conservatives and liberals and Democrats and Republicans. Look, I'm not saying that we, th- we throw our principles under the bus. Have your principles, stand for them, defend them well. But remember in all of that that God shows no partiality to any human being. So when it comes to reflecting Jesus, when it comes to passing on His love and the message of the gospel to people, we must not show partiality. And by the way, another just one practical application, personal application of this. Um, and Brian, I appreciated mentioning it in, in his, his prayer. So, you know, a lot of Christians are, and, and, uh, and I am one of them, can, can go through times of uh, self-condemnation as we recognize as Christians that, uh, you know, the... And we see the sin that's still in us. We see that even even when we're not sinning and doing good, that it still falls short of what God requires. And it and it is easy to be hard on ourselves uh, and to engage in in really negative self talk, right? And so you you need to hear that message that Peter heard and apply it to yourself, right? What God has made clean, do not call unclean. Do not call common. Okay. So that's the first principle. God shows no partiality. It's awesome principle. Second principle then, uh, God brings people together so he's showing no partiality, and, and in, in that then he brings people together, and he brings people together by gutting the governing principle of religion. Now what I mean by that is, you know, and I'm going to make a massive simplification here, but I believe it's true, uh, that, you know, mo- the, the world's religions all essentially operate on, on a principle, and the principle, very simply stated, is you've got to be good to draw near to God. Right? You've got to be good to draw near to God. So religion then becomes uh, about, essentially, about learning the rules and trying to keep them well enough to be good enough for God. As I've told you before, that's a lot. That's my non... My, friends who aren't Christians think that's what I do. That I've, uh, you know, 
like I, I had one time mastered the Internal Revenue Code, now I've mastered the Bible. I know the rules better than most. I teach the rules, and I live the rules better than everybody else. And if we can all live the rules, uh, you know, you know, well enough, and I guess God grades on a curve, then we all get in. That's that's the way the world understands religion, and because that's the way most of the world's religions essentially operate, right? Um, and even for people who aren't religious, right? A- ask them if if they will admit that to that there's a God, they will then usually do what the rich young ruler d- d- did, which is say, you know, I've been good, I'm I'm good enough. Man, I haven't murdered anybody, been faithful to my spouse, haven't stolen anything, right? What's all this talk about sin? Right? I'm good, I'm good enough. You can't say that. I mean, you can't honestly say that, you can't honestly believe that if you've really read and understood this account of the conversion of Cornelius. Chapter 10 goes out of its way to show you in multiple ways and multiple times just how good and moral and generous and charitable and reputable and humble Cornelius was. This was a good man. A remarkably good man. And yet, what happens? Well, the angel, you know, an angel comes to Cornelius, makes, he's scared when it happens, uh, and he says, Cornelius, good news. We've heard your prayer. We've, we've remembered your alms, right? Your, your, your giving and your sacrifices. Um, so then what does he say? So we've, we, we've, we've heard your prayer. We've, we've remembered your alms. So... Well done, Cornelius, you're in. Right? Here's the Holy Spirit. You've certainly earned him. Um, You're saved. Good job. You've been good enough, Cornelius. No, that's not what the angel says, right? We've heard your prayer. Remembered your alms. Go get Peter. He's got a message for you. In fact, listen to how, as you read this, the whole thing, you get different details at different times. Everybody sort of summarizes it a little differently, adds different details. Here's here's Peter's summary of what Cornelius was told uh, by the angel. Uh, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. Do you hear how jarring that sounds? Do you hear, do you hear how that is essentially ripping the guts out of religion? Right? To the best person you can imagine, God says, your morality, your generosity, and all your religious exercises, your religious devotion, don't save you. They don't forgive your sin. You need something else. 
You need something you don't have. You need something outside of yourself. You need something much stronger than you are. All right. You know, I want you to see the warning here. There is a warning, it seems to me. And here's the warning. You know, it's a, it's a warning of spiritual danger. It, it, in a community like ours, you know, where we live, and in a church like ours, the spiritual danger is that good moral people are going to start believing that they're better than other people and good enough for God. Good moral people are going to start believing they're better than other people and good enough for God. That's, that is spiritually dangerous. That's Pharisee talk. Right? If you begin to think that you're spiritually okay on the basis of what you're doing, that's a sign you are in real spiritual danger. It's the person who senses that even his best doesn't come close to the perfection and the beauty and the holiness and the perfection that, that God demands. And it's the person who's, who, who's, who's doing those things and at the same time sensing their inadequacy who is the closest to God. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, The Four Loves. And he says, man, that's, of course, he's writing back in the 40s, 50s. Man approaches God most nearly when he is, in one sense, least like God. I mean, man approaches God most nearly. He gets closest to God when he's, in one sense, least like God. Right? For what can be more unlike than the fullness of God on the one hand and the need of human beings on the other? The sovereignty of God on the one hand and the humility of sinful human beings on the other. The righteousness of God and the penitence of human beings. The limitless power of God and the cry for help of human beings. It's that cry for help. It's that cry for mercy. Even of the best person that shows you he's, he or she is closest to God. So that's the second principle. So we've seen, right, that God shows no partiality and therefore in bringing all kinds of people together, uh, he, he guts this principle of merit out of religion, this principle that you have to be good enough uh, to, for, for him to be accepted and loved by him. That, that gets ripped out, okay? Now, third principle, last one. God is uh, radically inclusive and radically exclusive at the same time. You know, as I was going through this sermon in my own mind, I, I even came to the point of thinking, well, it, you know, at this point, geez, you know, it sounds like maybe it doesn't really matter what you believe. I mean, you, Ted, you're showing me a God that shows no partiality, who's sort of ripping 
the principle of works out of religion. Maybe it doesn't really matter what I do. Maybe it doesn't matter what I believe. If, this, if God is this loving God who shows no partiality, who, who must therefore accept everybody. You thinking that? I understand it, but, but that would be to draw the wrong conclusion. Listen, the conversion of Cornelius and his people does not teach uncritical divine tolerance. Right? As we, as we, as the culture, uses the word tolerance today. Right? This is not to say that God is un- uncritically tolerant. In the, in, in, in the spiritual sense, that would mean that all spiritual options are open to you and all spiritual options are equally valid and equally true. That's what tolerance has come to mean. Not that you can ha- have an opinion, but th- that your opinion is or position is is equally valid and equally true with mine. Right? That's not what this uh, is teaching. The conversion of Cornelius does teach you that God will embrace anyone, absolutely anyone. He will save. Absolutely anyone. Doesn't matter your race, your gender, your past, your present, whatever. But that saving embrace of God has to be based on truth. It's open to absolutely everybody, but on the basis of truth. And like Pilate, are you asking, what is truth? It's the message that Peter delivered to Cornelius. It's what Cornelius needed. It's the truth that Cornelius needed to hear. It's what you need to hear, what we need to know, what we need to live by, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. What's the gospel? Peter tells us right here. Uh, You know, every time... You know, like a good preacher, he tries to say it differently. But here in verses 34 to 43, as he's speaking to Cornelius and, and the gathered people in his house, he's really giving a gospel presentation. Let me just uh, rephrase it in my own words, uh, right? He affirms that Jesus is Lord of all. He affirms that Jesus is the one who brings peace. Now that can't mean, right, uh, freedom from trouble, freedom from uh, war. It means ultimately, foundationally, peace with God. It means you can move through a very unpeaceful world settled, right? At peace, because you're at peace with the God of the universe. And Jesus is the one appointed by God ultimately to ultimately judge the living and the dead. You know, one thing that makes the universe and makes our lives have moral, any kind of moral sense, is that, is that there is going to be moral accountability. It's not, you know, you, you're, you don't just live your life and then disappear. You as a creature are accountable to the Creator. We're all, every one of us is morally accountable. It's what makes 
it puts guardrails on, on life. It makes life make sense. Right. Um, so you, if you're going to be acquitted in that judgment, whenever it is, whenever that happens, um, it doesn't matter whether you've been a good person like Cornelius or whether your life has been a moral train wreck. Right. Either way, if you're going to be acquitted in that judgment, you need to have repented and believed in Jesus. And when you do, your sins are forgiven, wiped clean, wiped away, and God pours himself into you. He pours his very spirit into you, reanimating you as a new creature uh, in Christ. Um, As judge... If you've repented and believed in Jesus, he will declare you not guilty, right? Forgiven, not guilty. But even more than that, right? Not just not guilty, he will declare you, he will pronounce the judgment on you that you are good, that you are righteous, that you are holy, and therefore able to enter into uh, fellowship Uh, with God, not because you've trusted in what you've done, but because you trusted in what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Peter tells us here, right? He lived uh, an amazingly good life, but not just a good life, right? It was the perfect God-pleasing life, a a life of of prayer, a life of compassion, a life of healing, It was the perfect God-pleasing life, and yet, says Peter, he was hanged on a tree. Now that's a strange expression, but what Peter is doing is he's, he's, he's adopting the Old Testament way of referring to crucifixion. That's how the Old Testament talked about crucifixion. It, it didn't say nailed to a cross, it said hanged on a tree. And and if you go to Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, it says anyone who has been hanged on a tree is cursed by God. So you you get this tension in the gospel, right? You get this God-man who lives this perfectly God-pleasing life and yet he dies cursed by God. What possible reason could he die under a curse? Well, it's because it's not his curse. He took your curse. Jesus took the curse you're under. The curse of sin and guilt and shame that you can't escape on your own. I don't care how hard you work. I don't care how religious you are. You can't escape that sin, that guilt, that shame. And you can't escape the death that sin brings. You just can't do it on your own. Right? Death is the great leveler. So what's the answer? Jesus takes that curse for you. Takes it on himself. And then that curse taking that Jesus took being, and then and dying for your sin and for your forgiveness is vindicated when God raises him from the dead. Right? Now listen, friends, this is, a lot of people misunderstand Christianity at this point. Jesus is not raised as a ghost. He's not raised as a metaphor. 
He's not raised as some spiritual principle. He's not raised as some amorphous divine force. Peter made that clear. What's he say? His, his, the witnesses who saw the resurrection ate with him and drank with him. Why does he say that? He wants to affirm the, what the resurrection was. This is Jesus Christ coming out from three days dead in his body, a perfected flesh and blood body. They touched him. They felt his flesh. That's the gospel. That's your future. In a remade world with no walls, you're going to have a body and live an abundant life. And that is open to everyone. Doesn't matter who you are. I don't care if you've altered your body sexually like the Ethiopian eunuch had. This is open to you. God can make you new. So, let me close with this. Let me ask you, are you acceptable to God today? Are you acceptable to God today? Well, how do you answer that? Peter, Peter says, who, says who's, who's acceptable to God at verses 34 and 35, the way he opens up his talk. He says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone, but in every nation, anyone, who what? Fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And now some of you are thinking, Ted, you just took away with your left hand what you gave me with the right. I thought it wasn't about our merit, our work. And now it sure sounds like Peter is saying, you know, the one who's acceptable to God, who's the one who fears him, worships him, makes, makes much of him, and also does what's right, does it well enough to be acceptable to him. But that's not what Peter is saying. Peter is really sort of hearkening back to something Jesus himself said. Um, in, in John, it's John 6, I think, or John 10, um, the, uh, Jesus is asked um, by People want to know, what do we have to do? We always want to know that, right? Just tell me what I need to do. And, uh, and, and they got down to really the nuts and bolts. Just tell us the one thing we need to do, Jesus. What's the one thing? And Jesus answered that question. You know what he said? Believe in the one God has sent. Believe in the one God has sent. So what Paul is saying, or what Peter is saying here, friends, is that anyone, absolutely anyone, can be saved. What they need to do, right, is turn to God and worship Him, worship the one greater God, and believe in the one He has sent. Right? Because ultimately, the only one right thing you, you need to do, the only one right thing you really can do, is believe in Jesus. Because only that faith in Jesus will make you right. Righteous. Nothing else. 
Want to be acceptable to God? Worship Him and believe in His Son that He sent. Right? Radical inclusivity. This is open to anyone. Radical exclusivity. You have to embrace the one way God provided to get out from under the sin and the guilt and the shame that you can't on your own, to get out from under the death that plagues you, that renders your life meaningless unless there's an answer for it. And the only answer for death that I know is the resurrection of Jesus. So you have to believe in His Son and what He did for you out of His great love for you in His life and His death and His resurrection. Radical exclusivity and yet radical inclusivity. Isn't that good? God's good. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank You uh, for this Word and for um, converting Cornelius because really because You converted him and his family, we, we are... Uh, mostly Gentiles in here. We have some Jewish brothers and sisters here, but we're mostly Gentiles. And and we are here with our Jewish brothers and sisters uh, because you broke down that wall and, uh, and and have let us in. And we are so thankful that we've been grafted into into Israel and, and that anyone can, Lord, anyone, can repent and turn to you. There isn't any one person here who has sinned his or her way out of the reach of your grace. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for that hope. On behalf of the Christians here, Lord, we thank you for our salvation. For those here who are not Christians, Lord, I pray that, uh, that you will run them down and find them and give them the hope that they need the answers that they need to their sin, their guilt, their shame, and their coming death. There's only one answer. It's in your son, Jesus. Show them that, Lord, and use us in that process. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.